What lady is that which doth enrich the hand of yonder knight? Next Chapter Podcast presents the play on podcast series, Romeo and Juliet. She doth teach the torches to burn bright. With original songs and music in a made-for-the-soundstage podcast. From Cupid's quiver, courage, I'll Have not saints' lips and holy palmers, too. Translated into modern English verse by Hansel Jung. I, pilgrim, lips that they must use in prayer. Hear Shakespeare's tragedy about two star-crossed lovers as you've never imagined it before. You kiss by the book. Adapted from the acclaimed Nat Cohen Two River Theater production. Can I move forward when all my heart is here? Go to playonpodcast.com to learn more. And remember, violent delights have violent ends. With thousands of books published every year, it's hard to find your perfect next read. Luckily, there's a podcast to help you. It's beautiful. It's a show where readers discover debut authors. Each episode, host Adam Vitkavage sits down with an author publishing their first book to discuss the author's background, how they crafted and edited their book, and chat about book recommendations. Adam has been called the champion of debut authors by Electric Literature, and his show is really insightful and fun. Head to debutiful.net, spelled D-E-B-U-T-I-F-U-L, to discover debut authors. You can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. The thought that leads me to contemplate with dread the erasure of other voices, of unwritten novels, poems whispered, swallowed for fear of being overheard by the wrong people, outlawed languages flourishing underground, essayists' questions challenging authority never being posed, Unstaged plays, cancelled films, that's a nightmare. It's as though a whole universe was being described in invisible ink. A writer's life and work are not a gift to mankind. A writer's life and work are its necessity. Thank you. Thank you. That was Toni Morrison, speaking in 2008 when she accepted the Literary Service Award from PEN America, and the audio comes to us courtesy of PEN America. Morrison is a Presidential Medal of Freedom awardee and recipient of both a Nobel and a Pulitzer Prize. To add to that impressive list of accolades, we'll also say that Toni Morrison was a stalwart crusader against censorship. Up until she passed away in 2019, she spoke and wrote often about the dangers of book bans, and she edited a collection of essays about the importance of intellectual freedom in schools and public libraries. Morrison knows about censorship firsthand. Her novels have been among the most frequently banned and challenged in America. Her first novel, The Bluest Eye, published in 1970, is a constant fixture on those lists, along with Beloved, which was published in 1987. Last episode, we talked about why and how books get that classic label, and what that does for those books. Despite the fact that Morrison's novels are considered literary canon and are widely read in high schools and colleges worldwide, her books are still being challenged and banned. 
Most recently, attempts to ban Beloved have been used to galvanize conservative political campaigns, not only at school boards, but at the highest level of state. In 2021, Glenn Youngkin, then Republican candidate for Virginia governor, ran a campaign ad featuring a Virginia parent who was upset that her son read Beloved in an AP English literature course his senior year of high school. She petitioned the state to restrict access to the book back in 2016, and the bill made it to the governor's desk, only to be vetoed. Youngkin resurfaced that story in 2021 as an appeal to voters. As a parent, it's tough to catch everything. So when my son showed me his reading assignment, my heart sunk. It was some of the most explicit material you can imagine. Youngkin presented himself as the politician who would ban the books that some parents objected to. He wanted to tap into a growing movement for, quote, parental rights in education. And it worked. The ad caught national attention. There's been a firestorm in the Virginia race over the teaching of Toni Morrison's beloved. Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin says the book should be banned and parents want it. Even the president weighed in when he campaigned in support of Youngkin's Democratic opponent, Terry McAuliffe. He's gone from banning a woman's right to choose to banning books written by a Pulitzer Prize and Nobel Prize winning author, Toni Morrison. Glenn Youngkin won. He's now governor of Virginia. And just months into his term, he resurrected the so-called Beloved Bill from 2016 and signed it into law. That law, also referred to as HB 516 and then SB 656, regulates books in schools that could be considered, quote, explicit. Under this new law, parents have oversight over what their child reads as part of the curriculum, and teachers must provide alternative text to anything that the parent objects to. Many have argued that the so-called Beloved Bill is a slippery slope on the way to censorship, In our conversations with writers and activists over the course of this series, many of them have pointed to this moment, this governor's race in Virginia, as the start of the recent and unprecedented rise in book bans. For many, this was a turning point. As Morrison herself pointed out in her 2008 Pan America speech, censorship affects not only books by marginalized voices of the past and present, but can also stifle the creation of future work those universes that can then only be described in invisible ink. In this episode, we look at the impact of Morrison's words and their staying power, and we'll also investigate the importance of writing to those most impacted by censorship. I'm Adwa Aduse. And I'm Virginia Marshall. You're listening to Borrowed and Banned, a podcast series about America's ideological war with its bookshelves. Over in Washington, D.C., Dana Williams, dean of Howard University's graduate school and professor of African-American literature, was watching Glenn Youngkin's campaign closely. Political scientists are very clear that you need contentious issues to make people feel like they have to vote. And what's more contentious in the cradle of the Confederacy than slavery? 
Professor Williams is also the president of the Toni Morrison Society. So when she heard what Youngkin was doing, she recognized his strategy. Toni Morrison's Beloved, it's an ideal text because it does deal with slavery and it forces conversations around the horrors of slavery that you have to deal with. Beloved is based on the true story of Margaret Garner, an enslaved woman who, in 1856, fled from Kentucky to the free state of Ohio with her family. Rather than having them recaptured into slavery, Margaret attempted to kill her four children. She succeeded in killing her youngest daughter, and the subsequent trials created a veritable media frenzy for the time. At the heart of the case was whether Margaret should be tried for homicide or the destruction of property, bringing into question the difference between Ohio's recognition of the personhood of the enslaved and the federal government's position following the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. So when we talk about banning Beloved, we're also talking about erasing this history. This was such an important story to Morrison herself that she made it into an opera called Margaret Garner. It's one of the very few operas that features Black characters, and it was first staged in 2005. This is a recording from the Cincinnati Opera in 2020. Beloved, the novel, however, takes place in post-Civil War. There is not only infanticide, but also scenes of violence, rape, and bestiality. Beloved is the name given to the youngest daughter, a literal ghost that haunts the characters and then becomes a real woman. Morrison wants your suspension of disbelief about the ghost in order to understand real horrors about race and slavery that are often pushed into the margins. We're giving you this background because it's important to know what Youngkin and others want to erase. Beloved is in some ways the perfect text to be a touchstone to say this is what we don't want our children to know about. We don't want them to think about infanticide because it's another version of abortion. We don't want our children to learn about slavery because it's over and who needs to continue talking about that in this way anyway. And slavery could not have been so bad that people would have been willing to kill their children rather than have them go back. There is an irony that Beloved is based on a story about how far a parent would go to protect their child from the cruelty of the world. And when we talk about banned books, the loudest right-wing argument to censor materials is that it's all for the sake of parents' rights. That's what makes Morrison a perfect target for politicians like Youngkin. So choosing Toni Morrison's Beloved has so many resonances. You have the opportunity to really throw cheap shots at America's premier author who can't defend herself because she is an ancestor, but you can still try to compromise this notion of a black woman as the premier American writer. One of the reasons Morrison's words are so political and her novels so frequently challenged is that she is a black woman in a position of literary power. Because if we say that Toni Morrison is one of the foremost American writers, and she has all the accolades to prove it, then what does that say about America? When Morrison pushes us in these novels and in the essays to think about particular experiences of Black people as being universal, that makes people feel uncomfortable for whatever reason. When there are more non-white peoples in the world, or more people of color in the world, then that feels threatening 
to the people who have been at the center and have placed themselves at the center of their worlds for so long. Morrison's novels, too, to some degree say, well, that's the center of your world. It's never been the center of my world. The other Morrison novel that has been at the top of the most frequently challenged book lists in recent years is her first novel, The Bluest Eye. The Bluest Eye follows the story of a young Black girl, Pakola Breedlove, as she navigates life with and without her abusive family after the ravages of the Great Depression. Poverty and Jim Crow have taken a toll not only on her family, but also on her body and her mind. Pakola wants to have the bluest eyes because she and those around her equate white beauty standards with social mobility. The book explores connections between beauty and sexual autonomy, often with violent consequences for its characters. The reason often cited for challenging both Beloved and The Bluest Eye is that the novels are sexually explicit. We've talked about the use of that term to ban works of literature by and about members of the LGBTQ community, going all the way back to the time of Anthony Comstock in the 1870s. And Professor Williams pointed out a similar pattern when it comes to applying the sexually explicit label to Morrison, too. Book bans are about more than what they say they are about. They're about more than the content. They're also about an unwillingness of an adult outside of a classroom, outside of a library space, to have the very difficult conversations about life with young people. How do you have a conversation about sexual assault? How do you have a conversation about a woman's right to choose? How do you have all of these conversations around desire and alternative responses to desire, the full range. These are really important conversations to have, and fiction does the work that real-life experiences simply cannot do because they allow for imagination. And so I think it's really important to read these books even when the content is complicated. If the aim is to shut down those conversations, we end up with bills like Virginia's HB 516, or Oklahoma's HB 1775, or Texas's HB 900, all legislation that we've mentioned in this series. And there are so many others like them. On their surface, these bills seek to monitor the sexual and racial content in school books. But when you look at their impact and intent, the bills end up disproportionately censoring all kinds of writing from Black authors, from writers of color, and queer writers. Professor Williams pointed out that Toni Morrison just wants to have a conversation with her readers. She's literally taught me how to read differently because it was requiring that engagement with me. And she did that on purpose. I didn't know it at the time. I've you know since learned as a Morrison scholar Oh, she wants me in this book. She's thinking about, I want to write the book that I wish was there. So I want to write the book that I would read. So she's always thinking about where does the reader come into this story? Professor Williams is talking about one of Morrison's most famous quotes. It goes like this. If there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. It's such a great quote because it implicates the reader, right? If a reader of books can't find what they're looking for, then they have to join the conversation. They have to write their story. That quote from Morrison was so persuasive to one aspiring writer that they had it tattooed on their arm. It's one of my favorite quotes because 
honestly, like it, it applies to all areas of life. It's like, if there's a thing that you want to do and that thing hasn't been done yet, then you should probably be the first to do it. This is George M. Johnson, journalist, activist, and writer. We published our full interview with George in a bonus episode last week. Their memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue, was included in the top 10 most banned books list of 2021 and 2022, along with The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. I mean, Toni Morrison has now passed away. So like, we're talking about a book that's 40, almost 50 years old, that they're still trying to keep out of the, the hands of young adults. So like, to be on any list with her is iconic, but even more so, it means that I'm doing the right thing because I'm trying to tell a truth that needs to be told. And that's all that Toni Morrison was doing. In their memoir, George recalls growing up in New Jersey, exploring their identity and autonomy in being young, Black, and queer in America. Their story includes moments of both joy and growing pains. From chipped teeth and bullies to reckoning with other types of trauma, family health scares, racism, homophobia, and sexual assault. George delves into their own personal experiences in order to give voice to things that are sometimes difficult to speak about. Not many memoirs come with a trigger warning, but in All Boys Aren't Blue, Johnson included an author's note, where they discuss that Morrison's quote, and the fact that some may find their story hard to read. I just want to make sure that people know what they're about to enter into and not be triggered by it. So I needed to like say, like, hey, before you enter this world, this is the world you're going to be entering into. And I think it's worked out in a really, really beautiful way um, because with the book being banned, I'm always able to say, but the author's note already says all of that. So your child or whomever could stop reading the book if they feel like what they're entering into is too much for them. In some respects, Johnson believes that writing about the love and support from their family has proven even more radical than the scenes of sex and violence. And yet, those scenes of sex and violence are the ones that politicians and conservative activists have taken out of context and read at school board meetings, and even this past September at congressional hearings. These people are trying to censor materials that I know have helped save lives, um, and they claim it's in the name or the vein of wanting to quote-unquote protect children, but it's like, which children are you protecting? The teacher told us to pick out a book for our project, and I was looking at her bookshelf, and, you know, I saw the book. This is Branda Gorges, a teen in the San Diego area. They first came across George's memoir in their classroom when they were looking for a book for a school project. You know, it talks about how identity as a Black person intersects with its identity as a queer man. That just sounded, like, really interesting to me, and it's an experience that I don't hear a lot about, and it's an experience I could partly relate to because I'm queer. Branda read the book and loved it. Then they saw an article on CBS about book bans. When they realized All Boys Aren't Blue was on the list, they were surprised. This doesn't make sense to me, you know? And so I just, like, gained an interest in it and trying to figure out why this is happening. So Branda began reading other banned books. I also checked out two other books. I checked out The Perks of Being a Wallflower and The Bluest Eye. They were so impassioned by the idea that these books were banned that they founded a banned book club at school. But we all sit down and then we just talk about what's happening in our book, you know, like an update on the plot. And then I kind of just let the conversation flow from that. You know, I wanted to figure out how to 
um, make these books more accessible because they all share really important stories and narratives, you know, especially with people of color, with queer people. And as a young queer person myself and as a person of color myself, you know, I feel like these narratives need to be shared, even if sometimes they might not be comfortable for you to listen, like to hear. Having hard conversations about life can be uncomfortable, but that doesn't make those conversations not worth having, especially to teens as they navigate the world. Censorship threatens spaces for parents, teachers, librarians, and other trusted adults to facilitate those kinds of conversations. It is difficult to deal with sometimes because, you know, you have to like hide aspects of yourself and um, hide, you know, parts of your identity because they might not be so accepting of it. And since I can't share my experience, you know, so freely because of my parents, I feel like I could do it through reading those books. You know, if you tell a kid don't do something, they're going to find a way to do it. I find copies online and I find copies of them in store and in the library and I buy them or I check them out and I read them. So our call to action for you today is to support the writers whose books are being banned. That could mean purchasing a copy or it might mean joining or starting a book club like Branda. Or it could mean standing up for public libraries to ensure that everyone has access to those books, no matter if they can pay for them or not. An organization called Libraries for the People has a series of steps you can take to do just that, from showing up at a library board meeting to advocating to make sure your local library funding stays in place. Libraries for the People believes that we can't just fight against censorship and book bans. We have to fight for the positive vision of expanded and protected public libraries for generations to come. You can learn more at libraryesforthepeople.org fight. And to send you off on that journey, we're going to leave you with a parting word from the literary queen herself, Toni Morrison. We have a never-before-heard recording from a 2016 event that was part of BPL's By the Book series, co-curated by Community Books. At that event, Morrison spoke about her novel God Help the Child and her writing in general at Congregation Beth Elohim in Brooklyn. The audio comes to us courtesy of the Timothy Greenfield Sanders archive of Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am. We're going to upload the talk to our YouTube channel soon but as a teaser and encouragement to stand up for authors like Toni Morrison and George M. Johnson, we wanted to share with you Morrison's response to this question. What keeps you writing? I really don't know how to stop. I really can't imagine me in the world without writing or thinking of something to write. It was just a free place. It was totally free, and it was mine. And nobody told me what to do in that place. You know, I own that place. And I didn't own anything else. You know, everything else was somebody else to do this, don't do this, do the kids. But this was mine. And that's what I clung to all those years. The contact that I make with these female characters is enlightening to me. And in a sense, it's strengthening, no matter what they say. I've learned a lot from them. Uh, A certain kind of strength, examining the lives of these women. Uh, Not power, just strength. Just a willingness to imagine and to go places that I may never have wanted to go and also a sovereignty, you know, about it being okay 
to be me. I don't mean the publishing me, but the me me, you know, the one inside. Borrowed and Band is a production of Brooklyn Public Library and receives support from the Metropolitan New York Library Council's Equity in Action Grant. The National Coalition Against Censorship's Student Advocates for Speech program connected us with Branda. To learn more about that program, visit ncac.org. This episode was written by me and hosted by me and Virginia. We received editorial support from Goat Rodeo. Our Bard team includes Allie Post, Fritzi Bodenheimer, Robin Lester-Kenton, and Damaris Olivo. Ashley Gill and Jennifer Prophet run our social media. Lauren Rockford helps with the emails. John Snowden designed our logo. The Books on Band team at BPL includes Summer Boimier, Jackson Gomes, Nick Higgins, Lee Hurwitz, Karen Keyes, and Amy Michael. Hey, Bard listeners. If you live in New York City and love the public library, we need your help. This past fall, our public libraries sustained deep mid-year cuts that forced an end of seven-day service and reduction of our materials and programs. We're now facing more budget cuts for the coming fiscal year. Libraries across the city stand to lose $58.3 million in funding. If these cuts are not reversed, we may have to reduce materials and programming yet again, including further reductions to our days of service. As many as half of all New York City libraries would be open only five days a week. The good news is you can help. Send a letter to city leaders telling them that you support the library. It's easy. It only takes 30 seconds and you can do it now. If you live in Brooklyn, go to bklynlibrary.org slash standup, all one word, to fill out the form. If you live in any of the other boroughs, you can send a letter on behalf of Queens Public Library or New York Public Library. Learn how at investinlibraries.org. Thank you so much for your support. <laughs>